When are the big cities going to get a grip on crime? I'm Brian Enton in for Elizabeth Vargas. Leland's next. Good night. On the program tonight, it never stops. Champion, done. North Face, done. AT&T, shot out. Day two of violence and looting in the city of brotherly love. It's wrong. There, there's no law and order anymore. Is this how Rome fell? Missing in action. I've invited him several times to come and see for himself. President Biden visits Arizona but skips the southern border. We'll show you what he doesn't want to see. The four-day fallacy. We expose the lies of office workers who say they're more productive skipping Fridays. Picking sides. United auto workers show up big for Donald Trump, but their leader refuses to meet the former president. Is Sean Fain out for himself or the workers? And the ultimate election influencer. Why Republicans should fear Taylor Swift and her 270 million followers. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, sadly, as we predicted, it happened again and it will keep happening. Last night, looters and rioters tore through Philadelphia again. Of course, they broke into the usual box stores, but they also hit a small beauty shop owned by a fellow African-American. How am I supposed to fix this? What's next? Because I don't know. Yeah. It's telling now that the social justice types don't even attempt to justify the looting. It's no longer about the rage of black youth terrorized by police. They know that won't fly anymore. We don't know for sure, but it's safe to say most, if not all, of those arrested from the first night of riots are back out on the street. It is, after all, Larry Krasner's Philadelphia. It's a motley crew, you might say. Philadelphia DA there, Larry Krasner's perhaps the most progressive prosecutor currently in America, so there's a chance all these folks will get off scot-free. After all, among those arrested on Tuesday night was Kenneth Fry. Turns out Kenneth Fry also beat a man to death last year, but was let out on bail by D.A. Krasner. It is now politically acceptable to blame soft-on-crime D.A.s for the rise in crime in America's cities. But if you said that a few years ago, you were branded a racist. Somehow it's now vaguely acceptable to tell part of the truth. What's not acceptable, nowhere near acceptable or politically correct, is to say what I'm about to say. The DAs shouldn't matter. Here's a local Philadelphia resident after the looting explaining why. You know what's funny? Every single store is broken into on this street, both sides, except the Red Wing. They even got a broken glass, no graffiti, Nothing. Champion, done. North Face, done. AT&T, shot out. In case you missed the irony, uh, Red Wing, the Red Wing store, it's the only store that was left untouched, sells work boots. The looting continues because of soft-on-crime DAs. It happens 
because of the moral decay among urban black youth and the ignoring of it by black leaders. For example, here is Chicago's mayor after a similar night of festivities in the Windy City this August. Ooh, that's, 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 that's not appropriate. We're not talking about mob actions. I didn't say that. What, what I, okay, what I'm... Hold on a second, okay? Respectfully. These large gatherings... These large gatherings, just hold on a second, y'all. I promise you. When rioting and looting turn into large gatherings, well then, beating a man nearly to death in broad daylight isn't that far of a stretch. I'm, of course, talking about the attack on a man in Chicago's Bucktown neighborhood earlier this week. If you watch closely, they didn't beat the victim to rob him. They robbed him, and then they kept beating him. Once people feel it's okay to loot, once the mayor tells them looting is simply a large gathering, well then, beating a man for kicks, it's not that big of a stretch. In case you're wondering, we haven't heard from Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson about the most recent video in his city. And that video isn't all over the national news. We've played it for the past couple of nights, but haven't really seen it anywhere else. The national media won't brand it the hate crime it is. If these guys were white guys beating a defenseless black man, there would be wall-to-wall coverage. And in America's history, there have been plenty of times when the roles were reversed and when white men perpetrated horrible crimes against blacks. But in recent years, when that happened, there was a rightful moral outcry that followed. The country was appalled. Soul-searching was required. But soul-searching after the video in Chicago or after the video of two young black men stealing a car and then running down an innocent white man on a bike would leave us with some very, very uncomfortable answers. Brandon Johnson, among others, would have to face the hard truth that the moral decay among many urban young blacks is real. And soft on crime DAs should matter. If young men are willing to beat someone or chase them down in a car for kicks, simply locking people up will not solve the problem. Sure, Michael Singleton is here, political consultant, Sirius XM radio show host. Good to see you, my friend. Yeah, thanks. Am I on to something? I, mean, I, I think you are. I, I think culpability is clearly there, and so we have to transition to responsibility. Responsibility for the young people to understand the importance of morals and ethics and structure. Uh, the responsibility of the parents to understand that they have a responsibility to raise their children properly. It's not the government's role. It's not Sir Michael Singleton's role. Now, perhaps my role is to mentor, of course, to give opportunity, to guide. But it ultimately falls on the parents. And I would finally say on the political leaders to keep the community safe. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in San Francisco, for example, Leland, where stores are leaving. I'll point to Washington, D.C., where we are. I recently read a story about a month or two ago where Giant, the only grocery store in southeast D.C., is considering leaving the area because so many people are stealing things out of the store. They're spending almost a million dollars a year. So you end up harming the very people who look like you. And I, and I don't think that's right. And I think most people would agree that we have to solve this problem. 
so there's two issues here, right? There's the you end up harming the people who look like mm-hmm. you in terms of the stores leaving and the food deserts that mm-hmm. get worse and worse. Jobs and, gone. And worse. And the jobs that leave. But then you think about the people who are looting and robbing. Mm-hmm. They grow up. They have kids. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that they're well, the going to raise their kids any better. The, the cycle keeps going down. Cyclical. It becomes a perpetual cycle. And you, you always hear this thing about like the revolving door around crime, right? Well, the only way you can stop the revolving door is by, one, holding people accountable. I think we do have to have some honest conversations about the family unit and structure. And I know it's hard. I know it's uncomfortable. Uh, and we can have that talk. I think we have to talk why about Why is that import- such a... Why is when you start mm-hmm. talking about fatherless households, regardless of yeah, race, sure. being the single leading indicator of criminal activity among America's youth? You say that, and it is game over. Nobody wants to talk about it. Why is that? You know, Leland, I think because it forces people to accept that we've all failed. I have to be honest. I think it forces people to realize they haven't gone far enough in terms of our leaders. Uh, It it forces people to look at the church, the black church in particular, which was once upon a time a beacon in the African-American community. Now it's about pastors who are enriching themselves and less about trying to improve the status of the community. Black pastors would not be the only would not be the first pastors to try to enrich themselves. But I'm just making a point here in terms of historic correlation. Uh, And so I think when you point to those variables, it's a lot easier to say, well, we need more funding or we need less police. And the reality is when you check the trajectory of all of those things, it doesn't correlate to safer communities. It doesn't correlate to more wholesome families. It doesn't correlate uh, to black youth in particular having a greater advantage going off to college or whatever skill or trade they ultimately decide to get. And so for me as an African-American, man, I want to see my community do well. That's important for me. Uh, But I also recognize while it's easy to look at some of the faults that we may have in terms of government, I think we have to address leaving some of our own internal struggles. And people have to be willing and open and honest to have those conversations. Yeah, well, you'd be one of the few, at least, that we're, we found that are willing to, to have the open and honest in conversations. <laughs> uh, Brandon Johnson does not seem so he, um, ready. He, he doesn't. He doesn't. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank Thanks you. for having Thank me. Thank you. Good to see you. All right, we're going to get to last night's Republican debate where crime was a big issue in a minute. But there's something that happened at the debate that was way more interesting off the debate stage than on. A Trump-like move by Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom. He crashed the party. And of course, we keep a close eye on Newsom, Newsom Watch, the non-candidate presidential candidate. It's been making a lot of news lately. Been acting, again, like a presidential candidate. And dare I say, like Donald Trump almost. He will say things that nobody else will say. Here is his analysis of the Republican debate. This is the XFL. This is JV. I mean, honestly, I mean, this is maybe, maybe a vice presidential debate. These guys are getting lapped by Donald Trump. It's not even close. It's not even interesting. And I think what's most interesting to me is, do they recognize that? Or are they actually going to show up and run against the guy that's in the way of their prospects to be the nominee? It's a zero-sum game. Newsom, of course, showed up. Trump did not. Not only was he showing up rather than Trump-like, so were his comments. In fact, Newsom's review of the debate made more news than the debate itself. Trump-like again. A little later, our body language expert will tell you why the seven Republicans on the debate stage couldn't break through the noise. President Biden lands in D.C. just a couple of hours from now after his cross-country trip. 
he quite literally flew over two of the most serious issues that his administration faces, and he did not stop. First, he flew from Washington, D.C. to Detroit. He flew over East Palestine, Ohio, literally over it. That's where that toxic rail spill happened. Chris Cuomo did a town hall from there on Tuesday night. Today, he visited Arizona, but decided not to stop at the southern border. And to be fair, who can blame him? The optics of a president visiting a border where a quarter million people come across every month, largely because of his policies, it's not the optics you want ahead of an election. Polling show his approval rating on the border at 23%, compared to 62% of Americans who say they disapprove of his handling of the southern border. Here now, Board of Supervisors from Yuma, Arizona, Jonathan Lines is with us. Uh, Jonathan, we appreciate you joining us. Um, do you think that President Biden doesn't understand, he doesn't care? What would he have seen if he came to Yuma? Uh, for the most part, I don't think that he cares. But if he would have come to Yuma, he would have been able to see our NGOs who are struggling. He would have been able to go down and see where uh, 10 to 12 buses a day are coming from Tucson to Yuma so that our Border Patrol can assist in processing. And then uh, many of those uh, illegals are transported to D.C. or to uh, New York. Um, and he would have been able to see uh, the families that are struggling because of the fentanyl crisis or maybe even visit Amberley's Place, our uh, family service center, where we have had people turn themselves in uh, on, on trafficking chart or trafficking um, issues and challenges. Uh, so he could have seen anything that he wanted to see here on the border. And I've invited mm -hmm. him several times, yet he hasn't been here yet. Yeah. And you think also he could see what's happening to, to border communities. We've heard what's happened to, to large sanctuary cities. Uh, the, the dirty little secret is, is towns like yours in El Paso, McAllen and, and the like have been dealing with, relatively speaking, tens to hundreds of times the number of people uh, that New York and Boston and Chicago are dealing with. Uh, border crossing statistics, 223,000 migrants encountered last month at the southern border. Uh, that, of course, doesn't count the gotaways. Highest for any month this year, 50,000 over the past five days alone. Uh, so that's more than a Major League Baseball park in five days. Uh, Southwest border encounters in Yuma, 168,000 through August. Um, I know you're a Republican. Do you think this is a partisan issue? Absolutely not. I mean, when you see these numbers that are 10 to 20 times greater than what they were under Trump, uh, and I have had several Democrats come to the border. Uh, I spent three days with RFK. Senator Kelly has been here. They understand the challenges that we are experiencing uh, I was in D.C. testifying before Homeland Security uh, last week, and it was interesting that they wanted to make it about everything else but the border. Um, I have talked to them about fentanyl, where here along the border, the average deaths are 19 times greater than what we see nationwide, uh, and talked about uh, some of the other challenges, but it's certainly not a political issue. Our border is open. It is not secure. Our national security is not being taken care of. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, as you say, it is it has now become a bipartisan issue. You should only be a Republican issue. And then you look at the, the, the numbers when you say 62 percent of Americans don't approve. That means there's a lot of Democrats who view this as really um, a, a terrible issue. 
of, of what's happening. All right, Jonathan, thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Um, thank pleasure. you. All right. Auto workers are, of course, united in their strike. At least that's what we're told. But they are divided politically. Very divided. How the UAW president might be taking his workers for a ride. Speaking of workers, four-day work weeks sound great. Turns out they might not be good for you. Seriously. We'll explain next. He wants electric vehicle mandates that will spell the death of the U.S. auto industry. You know, it doesn't matter. I watch it. You're negotiating a contract. You're all on picket lines and everything. But it doesn't make a damn bit of difference what you get, because in two years, you're all going to be out of business. Donald Trump yesterday in Detroit, he arrived to a hero's welcome from the workers, but not from United Auto Workers President Sean Fain. Fain refused to meet with the former president. Day 14 of the strike, Fain reportedly lowered his demands for the auto companies. He now wants 30 percent raises, down from 40. While Fain focuses on wages, Trump says he will save workers' jobs by ending the government requirements on electric vehicles. Despite massive subsidies, the car companies lose their shirt on EVs, and they require fewer workers to make, thus threatening the jobs of people who make cars. Here now, founder and chief strategist of Third Degree Strategies, Max Burns. Max, it's good to see you. I'm wondering if the real losers in this strike are not going to be the UAW workers themselves. Well, right now, the real losers are the people who are paying essentially to subsidize corporate greed. I mean, when you look at what the UAW is asking for, these are, remember, the same workers who took pay cuts to keep these companies alive during tough times. And they've seen not just a decade where those companies raked in a quarter trillion dollars in profit, but where their executives have given themselves pay raises every single year. Meanwhile, these UAW workers have gotten nothing. So it's not surprising that they'd be a little frustrated at that huge disparity. Yeah, you're not going to get any argument from me on the fact that the, the auto companies need to give these folks a raise. Uh, you said that there's mad at corporate greed. A lot of that money for those pay increases is coming from our tax dollars because of how much the federal government is, our tax dollars, us, federal government, is subsidizing electric cars uh, because they lose money when they make uh, electric cars, which is sort of the, the divergence here, right? Because you've got Donald Trump's view of things. He says, look, I'm going to cut out the electric vehicle mandates and let people make gas-powered cars that are profitable. Or Joe Biden, who says, okay, um, I'm going to pay the, uh, the car companies to make electric cars and then use tax subsidies to pay the workers even more. Again, I'm wondering why it is that these union workers are giving Donald Trump such a hero's welcome and their leader won't even meet with him. Well, it doesn't appear those were actually union workers. I mean, this was a non-union plant he visited. And it appears from what reporters have found that these are mostly people he paid to go and hold signs. That They were auto workers who didn't actually work at auto plants. They were union members who weren't actually in any union besides maybe the actor's union So it doesn't appear Donald Trump really has the courage to put this position before actual union auto workers because he knows exactly the response he's going to get. But Max, Max, look, I I hear you. You can't deny the fact that white working class voters that used to be reliably Democrat. Okay, we're talking about coal workers in Pennsylvania. Uh, We're talking about coal workers in West Virginia. We're talking about auto workers in Michigan and Wisconsin. Those were the people who flipped and elected Trump in 2016. 
right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, they're not wrong to point out that up until very recently, they haven't gotten a lot from Democrats. Bill Clinton promised a surge in union membership, and he gave us NAFTA. Barack Obama never put the PRO Act up for a vote after promising it. But the difference is in Joe Biden, he's done more than walk a picket line here. He's actually energized the National Labor Relations Board and put forward real rulings that are strengthening the labor movement. And workers recognize that. It's something you hear at every major labor event. All right, I'll give you that. I mean, it, might, it, come, it must come as a surprise to some of them because we had a UAW member on at the beginning of this strike. She said she voted for Biden in 2020 and wouldn't vote for him in 2024 because of what he did to the rail workers um, and what he's doing to the auto workers with the EV mandates. Well, remember, the railway contract did end up including the sick days and work time that were requested. It didn't come in the initial deal, but it did come in a further authorization that the president pushed for. I mean, between that, things like helping college athletes unionize, now giving unions more power to push back against anti-union harassment during votes. These are things Joe Biden can actually point to and say that he's delivered results in a way that no other Democrat has in decades. All right. Max, you are always a good advocate. Uh, We're honored always to have you here. Thank you. Anybody would be lucky to have you speaking out for him. We'll talk soon, friend. Thank you. Few things. Yeah, few things are as obnoxious as the empty assurances of people who claim they are more productive working from home. And they would promise they would be even more productive if they only worked four days a week. How about three days a week? We all know they're full of it. But it turns out the laziness of work from home finance types is actually not only hurting them, who cares, but it's hurting all of us. With us now, professor of data science at Washington University's Business School, host of MIT's data science podcast, Data Nation, Liberty Vitter. So all those people who say they're more productive working from home, no? Yeah, I mean, I think we would all like to get like 100% to way, of the pay for 80% of the work. That sounds pretty good to me. But study after study has shown that it simply doesn't work. All right, so you think about worker productivity, lowest levels in 75 years, currently stands at 3.5% down 2.7% in the first quarter of 2023. Five consecutive quarters of year-over-year decline. Labor productivity declined in 37 states in 2022. Um, It'd be easy to blame lazy workers, but I think there's something deeper there. Well, I mean, it's not just lazy workers. We have a whole new generation. We have quiet quitting. We have bare minimum Mondays. And now we have this push for a four-day work week. In places like Massachusetts and California, legislatures are trying to push bills on companies to get to this four-day work week. But we've seen that it doesn't work. They've done long-term trials in Japan and France that have clearly shown that productivity decreases over time. All right, so in the end, the people who get hurt the most are the people who still are working five days a week on the assembly line or at restaurants or anywhere else. There's enormous job insecurity that comes for people who are working full-time because all of a sudden, if you have people working four days a week having less productivity, you end up having part-time workers come in, which is what both what both Japan and France saw. And so then people who have these five-day-a-week jobs have less job security because there's all these part-time workers looking for more work. All right, so help us understand who is who really is it, it gets the advantage here. Is it the employers? Is it 
the sort of wealthier, you know, elite class of finance workers and office workers who are able to work from home. It's completely the elite class. It's people, it's hardworking Americans who are losing out by this because they're going to have less job security, less productivity, and there's not any more happiness. You know, a lot of people, the big argument is employees will have better well-being with this, but we've seen for the first couple months people might be happier, but then they become unhappy because they have less job security and because they are making less money over Overall, as companies hire in more, so why do, so is in a weird sort of in a perverse sense, even though productivity goes down, do companies like it because in the end they know they can get to part-time work that they don't have to give benefits to, on and on and on? We haven't seen that play out. That's what a lot of uh, these sort of think tanks are saying to companies to try to get them to try this out. But that's not what ends up happening. In Iceland, for example, they did a, a whole study on this for two years, and the government actually ended up having to pay out $40 million a year to be able to make up for the loss of productivity. Activity. Wow. Fascinating. All right. And uh, for some reason, I don't think they're going to a four-day work week and work from home in China, are they? No, I think we're at a seven-day work week there. So yeah. our, our adversaries are not, I, I don't see that. So, what, what, what do they call week. it? 699, six yeah. days a week, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m.? Exactly. Got it. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. The GOP candidates took to the debate stage last night, and while many of us couldn't hear what they were saying over all of the shouting and crosstalk, Our next guest shows us what they were trying to tell voters without saying a word. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We knew that all seven of those candidates believed that they had to have a big breakout moment. Ronald Reagan in 1980 used the phrase, are you better off today than you were four years ago? It was simple. It was clear. It has stood the test of time. What I did not hear last night is a good line like that, or that even an authentic one or a planned one. I don't have a memorable line that comes to mind this morning. All right, so that's Dana Perino, the moderator of last night's Republican debate. You know it's bad when the debate moderator says nobody stood out. During the debate, nobody said anything memorable. And, of course, that's not due to a lack of trying. Joe Biden doesn't belong on a picket line. He belongs on the unemployment line. I'm glad Vivek uh, pulled out of his business deal in 2018 in China. That must have been about the time you decided to start voting in presidential elections. My wife uh, isn't a member of the teachers union, but I got to admit, I've I've been sleeping with a teacher for 38 years. And um, full disclosure. For our recurring segment of Body Talk, we bring in body language expert Patty Wood. Patty, thank you very much, as always. I don't know about you, when I watched Mike Pence there, and I know I know the former vice president pretty well, I, he, he does not seem very comfortable as the stand-up comedian. Who's ever coaching him to try to be funny is not doing him any favors. <laughs> it takes 
a setup. And part of that setup is nonverbal. You have to have a little bit of a smile. Let's get into this, the joke of this. And he can't do it. And his timing is always off. It's always delayed. He's always on slow motion anyway. But the big pause before the punchline just doesn't work. Hmm. Um, Ron DeSantis has taken on this sort of new persona a little bit. And it's, look, some people, and I know you consult with people to sort of help bring out their personalities, but he's done this thing now where he sort of, he, he has a line, says the line, stops, and then there's two facial expressions he makes. Take a look. Prices to go up. I'm going to take out this veto pen and I'm going to send it right back to them. Ilya, you mentioned the question. I just want to address. It's like a grimace and then a smile. It's it's because it's an act. He has that great plan talking point. And a lot of times he can deliver it with strength. But then he's done and he doesn't know how to be. He doesn't know what he truly is feeling because he's masking so much of his true emotional state. So we see this nonverbal leakage in those weird, awkward mouth movements. How much of this, and I thought Dana Perino said something was really interesting. How much of this is people trying to be something other than what they are? I think it's a lot of it. And we feel oh, that. Well. The brain can read that lack of truth. And a lot of it has to do with when you truly are feeling something, you feel it in that limbic brain, you show it nonverbally, and then the mm-hmm. words come out. So when somebody is planning and thinking of the words, they're over in the neocortex and everything doesn't come in sync. It's not smooth. And so we, in our bodies, as we're watching the debates, feel this awkwardness and discomfort because we know it's not sincere. Okay, so the authenticity thing is real. Uh, Chris Christie, by many, is called sort of a bully and a showman, and uh, he plays that role on the debate stage. So we'll play a clip. You tell me whether this is of the authentic Chris Christie. Because it's not in effect. Put your hand down for a second, would you? Um, I still got. I still got time, dude. So, so chill out. Well, first he does that sort of first grade teacher fake sort of wave. But the true tell of who he is is he does this snort and this glare of anger afterwards, showing his real disrespect. There was a lot of disrespect in all the candidates last night. So he was among many people that were showing disrespect and anger. But with that snort of his, that's him. Did did anybody out there or does anybody out there, you said disrespect and anger, does anybody out there really portray true confidence? Is there anybody there who uh, said, wow, like. Well, Nikki Haley was probably the best last night at that because she had a lot of a variety, actually, of sharp edge gestures. And she did a lot of open body gestures where hands came up and open. And typically one of the reads we do of debates is who has more open up higher gestures. And our brain reads that as they're more alpha. They have more power. So that showed her confidence. And um, also, in terms of gender-based differences, she had a lot of strength in her voice last night, which I found Look, really interesting. Interestingly enough, the person who Donald Trump chose to attack the most last night and individually was Nikki Haley. Um, uh, and the person she went after was, was most was Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, take a listen. 
TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps that we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. Hmm. Right. And that's that if, if of all the memorable talking points, that was memorable, but it wasn't a strong positive statement. It was memorable because it was so negative. But again, look at her, look at her gestures. They're up, open, fairly strong and away from her body. All right. Well, I'm not trying to ignore you. You'd say my body language is not focusing on you right now, but I'm trying to I'm trying to move down here in our soundbite so we can get in what I what I think is something that it's important, which is Ron DeSantis attacking Donald Trump. Um, And this this was sort of this moment. Right. It was Ron DeSantis going to go after Donald Trump. You have to think that this was planned. It wasn't spontaneous. Take a listen. Where's Joe Biden? He's completely missing in action from leadership. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record. All right, I'm going to just stop you for a second. What did you make that his hands, you said his hands are supposed to go up. His hands barely made it past his waist for a second. And again, that's because he doesn't have the strength of the convictions in what he's saying. So it doesn't move open and up naturally. He feels constricted because he's trying to hide, in this case, throughout the evening, a lot of fear. A lot of fear of being judged. I could see that over and over and over again. Of course, that's going to make you have constricted movement. Oh, I'm scared. I'm scared. Hmm. Fascinating. Flash poll, who won the debate? Um, Donald Trump was number one, Vivek Ramaswamy two, DeSantis three, Haley four. Um, so many of these just don't really, the, the, the flash polls are, are so much more about um, sort of who has the most clicks on the internet versus actually uh, what happens. We'll, we'll, wa- we'll watch the polling. It's going to be very interesting. Um, and I got to say, Patty, we learn something new every time we have you on. Thank you. Uh, it's really, it's really cool. Here. Thank you. Hard to hard, having and knowing these people for a long time. It's hard. To, it's hard to imagine that you're able to pick up on this stuff just by 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 watching them for a couple of quick clips. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, here we go. There might finally be hope for long suffering New York Jets fan Chris Cuomo. There is hope, Chris, and we will explain his unlikely savior coming up next. That's what sports does to us. That's right. Makes us <laughs> do stupid things like being a Jet fan. Proving that there is hope for everybody. Really. Even our long-suffering New York Jets fan, Chris Cuomo. His season tickets might actually be worth something. Not, of course, because the Jets are any good. They still are terrible. But because Taylor Swift is rumored to be going to the Jets game on Sunday and suddenly... Ticket prices are surging. They're up 40% from $83. In fact, you could really had to try to give away Jets tickets. Now they're $119. Chris, who is now trying to decide if he will keep his tickets to go see Taylor Swift, not to see the Jets, is with us. You're lucky I had to put my tie on. I don't even have season tickets. I was told you did. Yeah, you got bad information. I'm a Jets fan. I don't have Jets season tickets. Oh, okay. All right. So, so is this is this the savior what for the Jets wrong? now? Taylor Swift showing up? No, but I did think it was really interesting what happened when she went to the Chiefs game. She has tremendous cultural cachet. This kid, huh? 
Yeah. Well, it, it, I, I was debating with my executive producer, Federico, about doing this segment because he said two middle-aged guys, which I guess now I qualify for, talking about how cool Taylor Swift is is going to show just how uncool you and I are. But I'm wondering if we're sort of not missing this cultural phenomenon, right, in that she's, uh, she's able to influence sort of across across the cultural spectrum. the Her new boyfriend, I guess if you can call him that, his jersey sales are up 400%. He's now one of the top five jerseys in the NFL because he's dating Taylor yeah. Swift. Yeah, like, I mean, look, he is arguably uh, one of the three or five best pass-receiving tight ends uh, in modern history of the game. Uh, but... I think, you know, correlation is not always causation, but he starts dating her and it spikes. I mean, we're, you know, it's, we're pretty early in the season for it to have been about anything else. Um, but look, right. this is not new, Leland, for a rock star, which is basically what she is, to have huge, uh, you know, cultural power. There's so much power in music. Uh, and they are like royalty in this culture already. All right, so you've got this idea of royalty, right? And, and you talk about the culture Politics downstream of culture, right? We've, we've, you and I have talked about that a lot. Gavin Newsom now talking about Taylor Swift. Take a listen. But what she was able to accomplish just in getting young people activated to consider that they have a voice and they should have a choice in the next election, I think is profoundly powerful. And I think she's using her celebrity for good. All right, so that is a Democratic governor at the Republican presidential debate being asked about Taylor Swift. Uh, what he's talking about is she put up a social media post about registering to vote. 35,000 people registered to vote, almost crashed the website uh, right when she put up that Instagram post. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that this is somebody who could play an enormous role in the 2024 election if she wanted to in a way that, I don't know, Mick Jagger was never going to really play a big role in, or Madonna was never going to really play a big role in a presidential election. No, I think, first of all, I think she's a very different artist uh, and social creature uh, than the other people you named. Uh, it is not new for our celebrities to have uh, some type of sway in politics. That's why the right um, tries to belittle Hollywood as much as it can and demonize it as part of the radical left uh, because they're worried about the influence of some of the stars uh, that have liberal leanings. Um, and that's not really new either. Trump has taken it to a new level, but that's, you know, the nature of his ability to exacerbate the game. Uh, it, it, getting people to register the vote is very different than getting them to vote. And mm -hmm. I think we've seen that with young people. There is often a, a large disconnect between who's registered and who follows through and votes. I mean, that's true about every voting class. We did see with the Parkland kids uh, that they made a little bit of an impact in some elections. Um, but I think that uh, Taylor Swift is not going to determine the outcome of the 2024 election. Yeah, Taylor Swift, though, is way bigger than the Parkland kids, right? And you say, you know, you got registering two different. votes different than, than persuading people to vote. But this is somebody who has a, a cachet with younger Americans. Mm. I'd say yeah. that's different than anybody else and the ability to reach them directly. OK, this is the first time this is the first presidential election in a way. Um, that you're going to have somebody with this amount of cachet, this amount of reach, this amount of mm. influence with the ability to reach people. And I'm not I'm wondering if we may not be underestimating it a little bit. Let's I, talk I don't know. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, you could toss it out there. I mean, it's it's, you know, 
I, I okay. guess. But I'm saying it's it's not a new thing. You're you're you're, um, you're 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 unconvinced with my with my hypothesis. That's fine. What do you got on the show tonight? No, no, no. I'm saying we don't really know. Celebrity's a big deal, but look, this is an election again that's about a state of grievance in this country. Um, people are angry, I'm, and they don't yeah. under. There's a, there are a lot of people who don't understand that they're so angry at the system, at the people who run what they believe uh, is the system, that it literally has masked any accountability for the former president. That as long as okay. it's this system that is judging Trump, they will reject the judgment. That's what the election's about. Can somebody offer the people who are right. listening to Trump something better? Well, I, I am told the Taylor Swift songs have a lot to do with grievance, so maybe there's an intersection there. I don't know. We got to run. We got Blake <laughs> Berman. We got Blake Berman coming up. I know you got a big show. Uh, congrats on on a phenomenal uh, post Trump uh, show last night. We'll talk soon, my friend. See you tomorrow night. All right, bud. All right. Last night's debate was so bad. Donald Trump's new poll numbers are so good. Establishment Republicans are thinking about the break glass moment. Who they're calling in from the bullpen next. We're competing with the job candidates. They're all running for a job. No, they're all job candidates. They want to be in the... Uh, they want to tell do anything. Secretary of something... They even say VP. I don't know. Does anybody see any VP in the group? I don't think so. It's former President Trump talking about his competitors for the Republican nomination. He skipped their debate. Mr. Trump told our friend Henry Rogers over the Daily Caller they have to stop debates because it's just bad for the Republican Party. They're not going anywhere. There's not going to be a breakout candidate. It appears it's the only thing Trump and the establishment Republicans agree on. They think we are at a break glass moment, according to Robert Costa. He writes, alarmed Republicans are preparing to draft Glenn Youngkin, referring to the popular Virginia governor. Blake Berman's here, host of The Hill here on News Nation, chief Washington correspondent. There does seem to be some panic among yeah. establishment Republicans. The, the timing here is what's fascinating about this, because you had the first debate, which Donald Trump didn't go to. His poll numbers did not suffer as a result. Then, he, of course, he didn't go to the second debate last night. And what's the line from the Trump campaign? We don't need any more debates. Right. Like party's over. File in line behind me. Let's spend our time, energy, money, everything on defeating Joe Biden. And then what happens today? There's this article that drops uh, in The Washington Post basically saying, um, you know, maybe Glenn Youngkin, governor of Virginia, could get into the race, that there would be money there. There would be support there for him. I don't think it's coincidental that all of a sudden it, it's sort of like an establishment Republican freak out almost with the way everything has been trending here. Yeah, look, the process part of this is always really fascinating, right? Uh, they're talking about uh, there's a retreat that Glenn Young is yeah. going on with all of his donors. But what do you make of the sort of confidence Donald Trump has right now? You covered him for a yeah. long time. You were out in Detroit with in, him, Michigan, last in, night, in yeah. Michigan with him at his speech. He's acting like he's the nominee. The polls are in his favor. As you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, when I was there last night, it was like jumping back into 2015, 2016 almost. Yes, the crowds were a little bit smaller, but we're not in a general election last night. But the support, you know this, there's nothing like going to an actual rally for a presidential candidate. Yeah. You go to Donald Trump's, you went to Bernie Sanders back in the day, you got it. Did, you understood it. Have you ever it. been to a Yunkin rally? I haven't been to a Yunkin, no. 
The only people I've ever said it's different with, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Glenn Youngkin. Huh. It'd be an interesting fight if they got it. Although the Robert Costa piece, they talked about, you know, what, John Bolton and others. This was not a It was establishment. A it was hedging. It was like, what if? And that's why, you know, I, I, I said today, like, that sound you just heard is the Republican establishment saying, my gosh, and sort of having a little bit of worry. Yeah, a, a lot of worry. Yeah. Because it may be over before it even begins. As Donald yeah. Trump let up, hey, Great trip, great reporting out Thank in you. Uh, Detroit. We'll talk to you. Thank you very much. All right, Chris is up.